this whole inflammatory cascade that occurs when we eat the wrong kind of animal product. The crowding conditions, the stressing of the environment of these animals are forming these amyloid fibrils within their tissues that could not be disassembled through any type of cooking process. Contributing to 50 major conditions, we've hit a tipping point with glyphosate, an herbicide pesticide in our food supply. Glyphosate creates an environment where the body believes it is making glycine. You never act from a place of fear. All information is feedback. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling me what resonates with you. Thank you for, thank just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Anyways, to today's show. Today's show, speaking of gratitude, this has been one of my favorite episodes to date. I actually really, really, truly mean that. This conversation I will say it starts a little bit technical, but guys, keep listening. We get into so many topics. It's incredible. Terry is just brilliant and she knows so much and we go into so many things in this episode that I personally have been wondering about, personally experimented with, personally wanted to know more about. I think you will learn so, so much. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash wild. Definitely go to those show notes. They have a full transcript. I know that's going to be super, super valuable for this episode. There will also be links to everything that we discussed there. There will also be a giveaway for this episode. All you have to do is comment something you learned, something that resonated with you, really just any thoughts about the episode on the pinned post in my Facebook group. That group is IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. So definitely join me there. I'm also a Himalaya partnered show, and you can follow me in the Himalaya app as well as in iTunes. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. So I have been looking forward to this interview for months, months, I tell you, ever since I read this wonderful woman's book. Actually, I think I first heard her on Ben Greenfield's podcast was the first time I think I was exposed to her work. But then I immediately bought her book, read it. It goes deep into some very fascinating, I would say theory. Yeah, I guess theories, but basically ideas surrounding our diet and how it affects health issues that we have today that I think there is a lot there. And I think it's something a lot of people haven't really thought a lot about. So I'm really excited to tackle it. I am here with Terry Cochran. She's an integrative practitioner and thought leader in personalized health care. And the book that I am referring to that she wrote is called The Wild Atarian Diet, Living as Nature Intended. And oh, I'm so excited. I have so many questions about this book. Thank you so much, Terry, for being here. Oh, so good to be with your audience, Melanie. So to start things off, I'm trying to decide how I should start this because I kind of want to just like start with the amazing ideas that you have in your book. But I thought before that, could you tell listeners just a little bit about your personal story? Because you have a wonderful story that you share in the book about health issues that your son faced, that your daughter faced, and what really brought you to the ideas that you have today. 
Sure, I'd love to share that story because sometimes we don't understand why we're going through something when we're in the middle of it. But as we reflect back, the aha moments are so clear. And so I had a corporate career and I had been in institutional finance and strategic planning and uh, even bankruptcy working in the line of whole asset based in the financial industry. And when my first son arrived, he was premature. And by the age of three, we were told that he would not be normal. He would have brain seizures. He would live a life that was not normal, that he wouldn't grow past five foot four. And he had life-threatening asthma, bleeding eczema. He was failing to thrive. And when we first received that diagnosis, I just fell onto my bed and thought, okay, well, we can work with this. But then a, a still small voice came later and what it told me was, well, what if it doesn't have to be this way? And I'm a Cuban refugee, Melanie, and my whole upbringing was live into the solution, do not be a victim or accept the problem. And so I donned that, which was instilled in me, it was reawakened in me, and I became a rabid researcher. And while I held my job at Freddie Mac, managing one of their business units, I had my night job, which was trying to avail myself of what was out there that hadn't been put together, the puzzle pieces in traditional or even functional medicine. Now, this was almost 20 years ago, and he's my son will be 26 this summer, and there was no Google, there was no internet. We were just starting with the internet, and so I had to go and do the old fashion kind of research, which was libraries and interviewing and reading, reading lots of books with, you know, actual touching the pages. But an epiphany came upon me after months and months of research. And it was, oh my goodness, are the foods that we are feeding him poisons to his body? And that was the catalyst of his healing path. And now I can say happily as an almost 26 year old, he is a robust individual. And that child who was told that would never be normal became a junior Olympic gold medalist in karate. And he was the valediction speaker at his high school, a varsity athlete in swimming, a singer, a musician, and was given a full academic ride to University of Virginia, which is considered a public ivy and has since graduated as a scholar and an athlete. So I'm very, very proud of him. And I became that voice for other mothers when I decided to leave my career and move into what is now the work that I do, that voice for other mothers that were told, deal with a broken child and things will only get worse over time. That is such an incredible story. And especially, I mean, talking about in the times before the internet, (laughs) I can't even imagine the amount of research and work that that would have taken going and finding all the studies and doing that research. And I feel like so many people, I mean, I know for me, it's a similar story. My relentless search for answers came out of my own health experiences that I have been experiencing and do experience. And just, it's like feeling like there is an answer and there must be something there. And that search to find that is just, I think what drives so many people. And I feel like I keep teasing at it. So in your book and in your work, you posit this idea that basically our modern diet has led to a state of systemic reactivity and making us more susceptible to especially things like large proteins, viruses, bacteria, pathogens. You talk on 
three big things that can be an issue. And those are proteins and amyloids, which we can talk about. I've been like dying to have this amyloid conversation for so long. Proteins and amyloids, sulfur metabolism, and fat metabolism, actually. And I'm just so fascinated by all of this because I I think a lot of people don't really expect this. So what's going on there with these three things? And we can, of course, go into each one, but proteins, fat, sulfur, is it the actual compounds themselves? Is there a genetic response to it? What led you to this idea? So this is a great question. And the genesis of the wildatarian movement and the wildatarian way was really born from a client that found me who had been diagnosed with amyloidosis. In his case, the amyloid structures, which are indigestible proteins, had wrapped around his heart. They were carcinogenic. And two failed attempts of chemo had put him into congestive heart and kidney failure. And by the time he found me, he had been given his last rites, basically told to go home and put his effects together. His wife, being a CNN producer, also a researcher, found out about my practice and they came to see me. His name is Glenn. And we did research. I didn't know about amyloidosis. This was almost eight years ago. This was just at the beginnings of how amyloid plaques in the brain affect Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. But I'd never heard of it in the form of cancer. And at the time, I had on staff a researcher that had been a genetics researcher at the National Institutes of Health. And so I sent Sarah down this path of why this might be happening. What is going on that this is being created? And what we found was that our food supply was contributing to the tipping point of amyloids in our body that then were contributing to 50 major conditions in our society, including Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, diabetes, cancer, and autoimmune conditions. And so what was so interesting about this is that we discerned that the food supply was becoming a feeder system for these amyloids. And so amyloids are truncated protein structures, and they're part of our homeostatic mechanism in our body that creates an inflammatory response so the body can fight something. But what we found was that these proteins through the food supply were creating a tipping point in the body so it can no longer use the proteins, disassemble them into amino acids and recombine them into that miraculous transformation to support hormone balance and tendon structure and cellular communication. Proteins are a big deal in our cellular communication in our DNA. And so these truncated protein structures were now a bully to genetic expression, creating deleterious effects in our body. And what we found through our research, Melanie, is that why was this happening? How could it have been that for millennia, we have been eating proteins from animal meat and all of a sudden this now was becoming an issue? And the research we found And then subsequent, the thousands of clients that have come through this process through our practice is that the crowding conditions of the animals were literally creating these truncated protein structures in their tissue that could not be disassembled through any type of cooking process. We then ate them. They then were creating a fire starter in our system. And in his case, and in Glenn's case, was creating a, a storm of you know, potentially, was not potentially, but life-threatening storm in his body. And when we switched his way of eating over to 
a wildetarian lifestyle. He was my patient zero for wildetarianism. Within three months of this, the light chains, which are the markers for measuring amyloids in his body, were normalized. And so at that point, he could then continue or restart his chemo. And he is cancer-free almost eight years later. And this man that was not to live, they told him, well, if, if, you, if you live, it'll come back in two years. It'll come back in three years. It'll come back in four years. And he just sent me a video recently, just about a month ago or two. He's riding his bike. He used to be an avid bike rider down this really rugged terrain and saying, Terry, look how strong I am. He, he sh- recently also shared, any, any time I can be a voice for this truth, you know, you, you, have my, you have my complete support. And so that's the power of the body to get back to balance if we give it what it needs and if we understand why it's doing what it's doing. That is so incredible. And I think it's so huge because protein is obviously such a a foundational building block of our body. And then there's this potential for things to go wonky. So I have some questions about the whole amyloid process. So in a non-amyloid situation, so like in the ideal situation, is it we eat protein, it's broken down into amino acids, and then those amino acids are, you know, reassembled and used by the body correctly. So there's no, so an amyloid, from my understanding, is it like the amino acids being just put together incorrectly? Like what's wrong in the amyloid? So an amyloid is a truncated protein structure. So that means that it's broken down and it cannot be disassembled by the body, even through our digestive processes. So the body makes protease, which is an enzyme to break down proteins into amino acids. In order for that to happen, there also has to be hydrochloric acid. And there's a whole other piece to that. And that's why wildetarianism really encompasses this very tapestried approach. It's it's complex in the way that I came to it, but very simple in its execution. And so what we know is that you need certain biochemical processes to occur in the body for protein to be disassembled and put into certain amino acids, which then are recombined for multiple uses by the body. What we find is these truncated protein structures don't get disassembled. And so after a while, the body hits a tipping point and it can no longer understand them and they start accumulating either on tissues such as on the brain, in the spinal cord, in the kidneys, in the pancreas, or systemically. We have found that conjugated lymphocytic leukemia, which is a blood disorder cancer as well, has an amyloid base situation. So it can be systemic or it can be tissue specific. So can the body both produce its own amyloids endogenously as well as take in exogenous amyloids? And can both of those build up? Yes, exactly. Now, in a homeostatic environment, the body will produce endogenous amyloids. The homeostatic mechanisms, because it's small enough and it's not, it hasn't hit a tipping burden and the body can digest other proteins, they're, they're broken down or they're used as inflammatory agents and the body responds with inflammation and then they are assimilated or metabolized. Okay. So basically, we have our body, just to break this down a little bit for listeners, and there is this potential with the whole protein system that, so that's a question. So with the endogenous production, so when our body creates its own amyloids, it basically has broken down protein and then reassembled those proteins into a structure that cannot further be broken down? Yes. Okay. So it's like you took in something, rearranged it and made it 
permanent and potentially inflammatory. And that's okay. This is just very fascinating. And they're called functional amyloids. So, you know, they have a function. Functional. Okay. Yeah. So they have a function to their protein folds and fibrils. And they're not specific to being a fire starter, as I call them, right? They're non-toxic in essence. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. I mean, because if you think about it, if we have things like scar buildup or tissue buildup or things that we might see as unpleasant, I mean, if you think about it, there's probably a reason the body created that. It's responding to something. So I can see what you're saying about how it has a purpose. But then you're saying that we all now take in these exogenous amyloids, which are already preformed in conventional animal products. And so we're just filling ourselves up with these and then are not able to adequately, I guess, deal with them. Exactly. And so if you look at the functional amyloids, what they are is in the amyloid fold, it's ideal for the storage of protein and peptides, which we need. And if you look at our messenger RNA, which was the original DNA scaffolding, they were made of amyloids. And the reason being is that they were able to withstand these extreme temperatures way back at the beginning of of man and time. And so it's really interesting how it has shifted into a non-functional amyloid. That's fascinating. And so with the amyloids in animal products specifically, is it the stress of the conventional raising patterns that's encouraging the formation of those amyloids? Or is it a species-specific thing? Well, that's a really great question. The two most studied animals are beef and chicken, chicken being the most studied. What they are finding is that the crowding conditions, the stressing of the environment of these animals are forming these amyloid fibrils within their tissues. They actually did a study, Michigan State University did a study with ducks. So they crowded the ducks and after six months, many of them had amyloids in their tissue and months later, many of them died. So the crowding conditions, similarly with chicken, they've done crowding studies with chicken and then amyloid fibrils are formed in their tissue. Okay, this is fascinating. Okay, so, and Herdy spoke about chicken in particular being likely very high in amyloid. What if you had a chicken that you raised yourself and it was never stressed and it was just happy chicken? Would it likely still have amyloids? That's a really good question. I've not done the independent study on that. And so what we do know is heritage birds tend to be safer. And the subtitle for the wild vegetarian diet is living as nature intended. And if these animals lived as nature intended, they would not have these amyloid formations in their tissue. And so what we are finding is if that chicken that was raised happily, because now through the COVID environment, a lot of people are buying little baby chicks, right? And then they're raising them possibly to be consumed later. And there, there have been a run on baby chicks. However, in that baby chick may be raised in a very loving environment. However, if the mother was raised in a stressful condition, that DNA structure could have been passed on. And so that's the, you know, there's the rub, if you will, in terms of what's possible with a DNA transfer. Wow, this is just so huge. I, I don't know, just like with the whole movement about you know, the need for responsible farming and practices that support the health and wellness of the animals. I think oftentimes it, which is amazing, but it's, it's from more of like a environmental or almost, you know, it's it's like a, a different perspective it's coming from. But I mean, this is like a literal scientific thing that's happening here that is actually changing, 
you know, when we consume these animals, how they affect our health as well. So I, I'm just so fascinated by this. Actually, and this might sound like a little bit of a tangent, but one of my all-time favorite supplements, I'm dying to know your thoughts on this. It's it's something that on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, we are kind of well-known for. We're big fans of taking serapeptase during the fast, using it to encourage to break down residual and other proteins that are built up in the body. Do you know if that's something that has the potential to clear amyloid built up in the body? I love serapeptase. Glenn was on serapeptase. It's a proteolytic enzyme, right? That helps to break down these proteins. And what happens is when you when you look to having them, so two things, proteolytic enzymes have been used a lot in cancer, actually, in the work of Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez. He was one of the pioneers in using proteolytic enzyme therapy for cancer. And when you take them away from a meal, instead of digesting the food, it digests that which needs to be digested, which can't be digested, right? So an amyloid being one of them, it helps break things down. It helps break things down. And so to that point is I love serapeptase. It's a super anti, it's an anti-inflammatory, but it's also what I call, it's a Pac-Man. I could see it like, you know, I visualize things and I could see it almost like eating up those little amyloid fibrils. I love it. I love it. No, it's honestly one of my favorite things in the world as far as supplements go. And whenever I meet somebody who knows what it is, I get really excited. But it's so interesting. I was having recently I had David Sinclair on this podcast for an episode about COVID. And I asked him about serapeptase because we were discussing the role of mucus as a protective measure against viral infections. I was asking if maybe serapeptase wasn't the best thing to take right now because people find that it can completely clear their sinuses, for example. He had not heard of it. And his question was, why are more doctors not using it? And I was like, good question. Good question. But back to the amyloids and, and all of that stuff. So now listeners might be getting a sense of why your book is called The Wild Atarian Diet. So what type of animal products do you recommend to consume to avoid this problem of amyloids? So what we have found, and again, this has been empirical, but now we have enough empirical information through the clinical outcomes that we have in our practice is that when we consume animals that are in their natural state, for example, bison or elk or antelope or New Zealand lamb that has been, you know, happy little lamb raised in the fields or we have one of my staff members. She's actually the youngest on my team. She's this amazing Renaissance woman who actually hunts with a bow and arrow. And for Easter, I had backstrap venison that she and her father had hunted. <laughs> and that thing was like butter. And so what we find is the animals that were you know, hunted in their natural habitats and that lived and grazed in ample, not crowded spaces... I call them the original grass-fed, free-range, sustainable meat source, right? Because it, it supports lower oxidative stress in our body. And what we do know is that wild game is relatively leaner and also higher in the omega-3 fatty acids. And so fatty acids have been touted as being you know, really important for our brain health and our eyes and our mucous membrane. But omega-6 is an, an inflammatory fatty acids, which, which can then ignite the prostaglandin response, which is actually in COVID, we need to be really careful about that, right? Uh, prostaglandin 6 is being elevated, interleukin 6 rather is being elevated in this COVID environment. And so we know that the domesticated animals are higher in 
omega-6 fatty acids, which is an inflammatory fatty acids. They're higher in fat generally. And what do we know about adipose tissue? Adipose tissue stores toxic elements. And we know that these animals that are commercially bred are fed antibiotics and they're fed hormones. And those hormones are xenoestrogenic, meaning that they're what I call kryptonite estrogen. And then also that these antibiotics will create an, a, a, a dysbiotic environment in their gut, which creates a further inflammation. And so the fatter the animal, the more toxicity they're they're holding in that marbling. So that nice marbled meat that you're eating could be rich in inflammatory amino essential fatty acids and hold a toxic burden in their fat that has estrogenic properties that can then disrupt the good little estrogen, the phytoestrogen on the cell receptor sites, knock it off and insert itself in its place. And we know that we're becoming estrogen dominant. If you look at young girls and their mensing cycles changing and polycystic ovarian syndrome being such a, a big deal right now and boys having you know estrogenic breasts and testosterone shifting against their favor. Estrogen moves higher and insulin is disrupted. There's this whole inflammatory cascade that occurs when we eat the wrong kind of animal product. So that just made me think of something that I have never thought about before, ever, does it matter then if you consume or does it change the hormone potential of consuming a male versus a female cow, for example, with the hormones? You know, I've never thought about that. Me neither. I'm like, how have I not thought of this? Wow. That's a really interesting question. You know, I don't have an answer, but you know, what I try to do is I'm a dot connector. And so if you assume that female cows just naturally carry more estrogen and then we're eating their meat, which is the wrong kind of, you know, that, that they are toxic because of the, the xenoestrogens that are carried because of the herbicides which convert to xenoestrogens, then you could have an argument for potentially, possibly, yes. It could be a, wor a worse situation. It makes you wonder for sure. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. 
Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like 100 brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order. So you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Makes you wonder if you only ate male meat products, for example, versus if you only ate female products. Really interesting. I don't know that answer. To be determined. I love that you brought up the fat aspect. Before we talk more about that, a few more quick questions about the proteins and the the amyloids, just because I have some lingering questions. So I'm always really fascinated by different dietary macros and how they affect one's health, you know, low carb, high carb, things like this. And I've always been of the idea that 
protein is, you know, a primary foundation for health. But I am very fascinated by things like extremely low fat, extremely low protein diets and reversal of disease. I'm thinking of things like Kempner's rice and fruit diet, if you're familiar with that. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on if you were to take out the protein aspect almost entirely or have it in a very, very broken down form, does that have the potential to address health issues just because the proteins are in a low quantity and completely broken down? That's a great question again. And I guess it depends on what state the individual is in. With Glenn, I, we had to make him, initially we had to make him vegan. His kidneys were really in his liver. And of course, his heart were really under very delicate conditions. And so any kind of exercise, if you will, that the body had to undertake for that assembly reassembly was too much for his body to handle. But over time, he's now a happy wildetarian. He's a, he's a low sulfur wildetarian. He's, he, he, he likes fat in his, in his diet, but he became a low sulfur wildetarian and lives that way happily almost a decade later. Now, the average human needs about 0.6 grams per kilogram for protein. And I work with professional and Olympic athletes and, and, and also bodybuilders. And so in their case, you can go up to 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilogram of protein for competition, right, to really cut the body. But it has to be the right kind of protein and the right kind of the symphony around the protein, right, which is what else are they eating that either is supportive to digestion or impairs digestion. So the body does not work in isolation. And so we have helpers and we have the bullies. And so we have to really avail ourselves of all of our helpers. So for example, papaya, which has papain, natural, a natural protein, protein enzyme. And so those of my clients that cannot take digestive enzymes because they may have too much irritation in their lining, their gut lining, because effectively what enzymes do, they break things down. If you have ulcerative colitis, I don't suggest taking a digestive enzyme because the body, that lining is broken down. We have to build it up first and then you can start exercising that. And, and with bleeding ulcerative colitis, I just had a client last week, we say zero fruit that's raw because anything that's raw is going to have more enzymes available to it. Everything has to be almost denatured and make it easier on the body. We don't want anything breaking anything down. So long answer to your question is, yes, you can be plant-based, you can be protein-based. For me, personally, I need my animal meat. I've tried to go plant-based. I can only do it for a short period of time, and my body doesn't like it. Why? Because I burn a tremendous amount of cortisol because of my every hour now in the COVID environment where we're virtually seeing our clients, but every hour in the hour, I'm being asked to make immediate and important connections vis-a-vis -vis what that client is telling me about their situation. So then I can, in real time, formulate an assessment and, and feed it back to them in a way that's going to be meaningful and helpful for them. So I burn a lot of cortisol. And so my best way to stabilize my blood sugar handling is eating protein in the form of animal. Yeah. I mean, so much of that resonates with me. It's like in theory, in my spirit, I want to be vegetarian or vegan, but I just always come back. I just feel like I really need a high animal-based protein source. The diet I actually thrived on, you're speaking about the papaya, for quite a while was a really high protein, high pineapple diet. I was basically eating tons of protein and tons of pineapple. And I found I digested it so well. I'm actually trying to work myself back to that. 
I went lower carb and it, it's been a little bit difficult to bring back the carbs. So do you think speaking to that, because oftentimes people will struggle with digestion. So they'll take a lot of digestive enzymes and find that that really helps with digestion and bloating. But I don't know, sometimes it feels like you can get stuck on these enzymes, or I, I almost wonder if it's doing more harm than good if you become too reliant on them. So it's really interesting to hear you say that about, you know, the potential of healing and building back up the lining before, you know, bringing these enzymes. So would it be better than perhaps to just be taking in like wild forms of protein in the most already pre-digested form possible, like pressure cooking, you know, breaking it down? Absolutely. Yeah. So complete protein. So buckwheat, for example, is a plant-based complete protein. You need nine essential amino acids. Rice and beans will make combined, will make that complete, provide that complete protein structure. Quinoa and buckwheat, which are seeds that act like grains, but are complete proteins in their structure are good ways to get plant-based complete proteins. Now, quinoa is also high in saponins. I don't do well on saponins. Those of us that are kind of a kidney archetype don't may not do well on saponins. So I don't love quinoa, but I love buckwheat. I made buckwheat pancakes yesterday for breakfast and felt like I was getting my you know, complete protein that I then had with papaya. <laughs> I had fresh papaya. So it really depends on, again, that individual and also what else is going on in the body. So a lot of plant-based digestive enzymes are aspergillus-based, meaning that they're mold. And if you have had a history of candida, which is a mold, then you're going to be feeding that candida through that digestive enzyme. That is no good. You know, instead go to a bromelain enzyme or a papin that comes from papaya. Bromelain is your pineapple. Go to those type of enzymes, but don't go to an aspergillus-based enzyme or for example, you know, things that have that are animal based, right? If you have significant protein malabsorption and you're taking Creon, which is a significant digestive enzyme that's actually one that is prescription based, that may be too heavy for you. And so not all these enzymes are created equal. We need to understand first what's happening in the body, what is the genetic tendency of that individual, and then move from that informed state to assessing and then recommending the best course of action. I am loving this conversation. I can't tell you how many supplement companies I've emailed asking them if they're mold-based enzymes. <laughs> wow. This is making so much sense to me, at least personally, why I feel like I thrived so well on a high protein, not using digestive enzymes, but high pineapple type of diet. Whereas now I feel like I'm a little bit more reliant on enzymes. Is HCL supplementation, is there a, a potential problem for too much of that? Or is that safer to supplement with? Great question. So hydrochloric acid, right? So how do you get hydrochloric acid? So I hydrochloric acid is the key that unlocks enzymes. So the enzymes are waiting behind that glass plate door saying, hey guys, <laughs> we need to be activated. And you activate it through hydrochloric acid. However, and how do you get hydrochloric acid? Primarily betaine. So betaine is derived from beets. If you have a high oxalate load and you have a high candida load and you have certain genes that don't allow you to break down oxalates very well, then betaine is going to be no bueno because it's going to create high oxalate load, which is actually going to feed aspergillus, which is going to feed the candida, which is going to leak the gut, which is then not going to allow you to avail yourself of all of you need because candida then also affects thyroid function. It affects insulin. It affects serotonin. It has so many kind of like a 4th of July effect, right? Fireworks effect on what that one little organism when overgrown can do. And also if we have 
if our really we're really irritated in our stomach or small intestine, so an acid would kick our butts. So what do we do? We take something that is a precursor to that. And one is one of those great things that is a precursor. Trimethylglycine and choline will help avail the body of producing hydrochloric acid naturally without introducing an actual acid, which could be contraindicated in an environment that's really highly sensitive. We have to be smarter than just going to that, what is it that I need? You might need something that will make what you need because what you actually need, you can't take it at that time because you're too sensitive. So question about the TMG, the trimethylglycine. How does that compare specifically to glycine? Is it just the methylated form? Yes. So especially for those of us that do not have or have actually the MTHFR genetic polymorphism, they're two SNPs, two single nucleotide polymorphisms related to MTHFR, the C677T and the A1298C. The C677T goes to your body's ability to manage hormones, bile acids, bile salts, hormone metabolism. And then the A1298C has to do with ammonia buildup, which has to do with protein, has to do with other issues related to a lot of metabolic processes. But in effect, what those of us with these MTHFR OM compound heterozygous, meaning I have one of each from my parents, I got the I got the uh, <laughs> the lottery on that one. But it doesn't matter because I don't express them. I haven't expressed those genetics, those tendencies. So if we do not have methyl donors, we cannot activate certain things. So why is that important? We don't have that donor that turns on what we need to then activate this cascade. And so trimethylglycine gives you three methyl donors to help turn on that methylation pathway. So then we can avail ourselves of that DNA methylation, which is so important. Gotcha. Now I'm understanding more. I take an NMN supplement to support NAD levels. And the one I use is formulated with TMG, which that was saying was important to support methylation with, with using that. And so speaking of the glycine, fascinating that you're saying it's an important precursor for creating stomach acid. You speak in your book about glyphosate and which as listeners know is, you know, a, a pesticide very prevalent in our in our agriculture today unfortunately. And I was not aware that there are studies showing the body might mistake it for glycine. Could you talk a little bit about that? I, that was fascinating. Yes. And so this is super important Melanie because it really shows to the tipping point that I believe we have reached through the food supply on how deleterious this can be on our biochemical function. So Roundup, which contains the active ingredient of glyphosate, which was made from all sorts of, it's an herbicide, pesticide, but it was made from leftover bomb material from what I understand back in World War II when this was, you know, first generation. Leftover bomb material? Yes, yes, atom bomb material from what I understand. From what I understand, yes, this is how these pesticides came and herbicides came into place. So what we found is, and this is through the brilliant research of Dr. Stephanie Seneff at MIT, and I've had the luxury of having multiple conversations with her on this and really just like drinking in her her brilliance because we were coming to very similar pathways in our mind empirical research and her and her lab research, is that glyphosate creates an environment where the body believes it is making glycine. It actually creates what is called a glycine analog, a glycine imposter. Why is that so important? 
we know that glycine is necessary for the production of hydrochloric acid. Hydrochloric acid is that key that unlocks the enzymatic capacity. Glycine is super important in methylation. And so it inhibits in a big way our body's ability to break down proteins. How is that important? It's so important because what is gluten? Gluten is a big protein. Why has gluten become such a big problem in this last 15 years? I believe it's because we, we, we've hit a tipping point with glyphosate in our food supply, even if we're eating organic because it's runoff in water and because of cross-contamination. And so protein, and then back to not only, because protein is, is animal as well as plant-based, but that, that gluten molecule, which has been, it's in the wheat crops, which is liberally sprayed with Roundup, which then we eat, which interrupts our protein digestion. So now we've got these truncated protein structures in the form of amyloids and we have gluten that has been sprayed with glyphosate that interrupts the glycine and it interrupts sulfation pathway. And we'll get to that in a minute, not gluten, but the, the glyphosate. And we have a problem. We have a big protein problem. Do you think that's one of the reasons people feel like sometimes they can go to Europe and eat gluten and be okay compared to the US, maybe the, the glyphosate aspect of it? That's what empirically we have found. And I've seen it with many, many of my clients where they're like, Terry, I went to Europe, I ate croissant and I ate all sorts of French bread and pasta in Italy and I was fine. And I come back here and I have one slice of whole grain bread and I'm doubled over for two days. And so I believe that that is contributory for sure. This is so fascinating. Even with like wine, for example, do you drink dry farm wines? I do. It's the only wine I drink. Yes. Only wine. I know. Okay. I was like, should have known, should have known. Yeah. For listeners, they basically go throughout, they're amazing. They're incredible people too. They go throughout Europe and they find the wineries that are practicing organic practices and low mold. We talked about low toxins, low alcohol, low sugar. But what I found fascinating was prior to that, I was drinking organic wines, you know, for myself that I would buy. And They've done studies and all organic wines tested from California contain pesticides. And if you think about it, like, I just think like in the form of wine, when it's in, you know, with the alcohol, I just feel like it, I mean, I don't know, it's just me thinking, but I feel like that would be a very easy avenue to really ins get it into your body in that form. If you think about like tinctures and stuff being alcohol-based, I just feel like that could be huge. That's brilliant, Melanie. And I, Dry Farms, and, and we've partnered on creating wine pairing with wildetarian menu options. That's awesome. Yeah, and we've got it on my website. We've done a, a fall and a winter, wild, we call it wild wine pairing with dry farms because they are also, not only are they sugar-free, but they, according to their lab testing, they're sulfur-free. So it's very much aligned with the wildetarian philosophy. I can start saying that. Do you know, does, quote, normal wine often contain high levels of sulfur or can it? Well, we have naturally occurring sulfur in, in wine and it's... Or the sulfites. The sulfites. But then they add added sulfites here in the United States for preservation perspectives. And I did read that article that 100% of California wine, sadly, because I went to Napa a few years ago, 100% of California wine contains glyphosate. And that is just that. That's really crazy. That's really, really crazy. That's crazy. Well, for listeners, I'll put links to all of this in the show notes. Before we go to the fat slash sulfur uh, question, so fish, is fish on the menu? It is on my menu. As a matter of fact, I had sustainably raised sea bass for lunch with some Japanese sweet potatoes. So that was my lunch for today because I needed my fish food, which I call my brain food because it's so rich in zinc and selenium. 
And yes, I eat fish. And and if I'm going to go more what I call, you know, kind of down the continuum of easier to digest proteins, I go to fish. And I'll go to certain beans. Pinto and Great Northern seem to work really well for me. Black beans don't, even though I'm Cuban, because I have a high oxalate load uh, post-viral attack, which I had a viral attack a couple of years ago that really kicked my butt and that really helped inform the book. So I find that fish is is phenomenal. But again, farm-raised, you have to be careful. Also, you know, there there being farm-raised salmon, some people have air-quoted, called it Franken-salmon because they're given pink dye, they're swimming in their own excrement. It's not not a good deal. So we want to be wild-caught when possible. Also understanding that if it's sustainably and humanely raised, then that's also another option because we are overfishing our oceans. And that's another consideration and another you know, dialogue for living sustainably. I've just launched, you'll be the first podcast I talk about, the Global Sustainable Health Institute. And this is about the long game. We got to be in here for the long game. And how do we each as an individual put our imprint on the planet to support the long game for this earth? I cannot agree more. I have a super random question about the fish and amyloid formation. Is there not as much of a potential for amyloid formation in fish because they're of a lower consciousness level so they don't register being stressed from a mental perspective and thus don't create the amyloids? That's a really beautiful question. I don't know. But my son and I were having a dialogue. He said, Mom, I will no longer eat octopus as much as I love it because I now understand that they have feelings. They're really, really smart. They're super smart. That was going to be my next question was, would, quote, smarter seafood potentially, if you put it in a stressful raising environment, would it potentially create amyloids? You know, I think that's a really good question to be then, you know, further a research further to another to do. Yeah, exactly. But I think that that's a really viable question, right? If they can feel and they understand what's happening to them and their autonomic nervous system, their, you know, fight or flight response is releasing all of this information <laughs> into their body information, air quote, then potentially yes. I've also heard on the flip side some vegetarian arguments for consuming shellfish, for example, because they lack a central nervous system, which is an interesting concept within that whole world. So moving towards, because we spoke about fat and the potential of that to harbor toxins, endocrine disruptors and things like that. One of the fascinating things I found in your book was, obviously, you understand and you talk about the important role of fat in our health that, you know, it can play a vital role. But the irony, which I took away from this was that if we are in a state where we're not properly absorbing fat, that a high fat diet actually could be counterproductive because it basically inhibits further our ability to properly utilize fat. Is there this idea that for some, based on the the individual, that actually a low fat diet might lead to a situation where they better assimilate fat? Absolutely. To quote one of my clients, Terry, you were right. Nuts made me nuts. (laughs) In the healthcare space, she's in physical fitness, she's a trainer, and she was, you know, going to keto. And in her case, it was kicking her butt because she had certain genetic predispositions and she was also pushing her body. And I I support a lot of the Washington Ballet ballerinas and I I speak there regularly. So I I work with a lot of ballerinas. And so when when you push the body beyond its ability to support itself, where we're constantly pushing epinephrine and a result to 
try to manage blood sugar because you've deleted your glycogen stores, which is your stored sugar, then you release epinephrine, which is a fat over time that's going to leak your gut and potentially make you fat malabsorbed. And I'm seeing, again, back to the point of being estrogen dominant, when I was growing up, I'm in my 50s, we had polycystic ovarian syndrome did not exist. We had girls that were on birth control and myself included, I was on birth control for over 20 years and I'm compound heterozygous for the MTHFR, which doesn't make me a really good candidate for birth control. I realized that now in retrospect that I had a couple of miscarriages, that's because my progesterone was low relative to my high circulating estrogen, even though I'd always been a, a very fit woman I was, and, and I was very healthy growing up. But the kind of my Achilles tendon related to fertility or sustaining a pregnancy was in my low progesterone estrogen ratio, but never polycystic ovarian syndrome. Well, polycystic ovarian syndrome is a function of hormone disruption with insulin being at the core of it. And insulin is a fat. It's called the fat storage hormone. So those of us that have certain genetic predisposition, like the MTHFR C677T, the COMP gene, which goes to fat metabolism, COMT, if you have leptin resistance, if you have the BDR gene that goes to ability to process vitamin D, also a fat and a, and a hormone precursor, if we have the APO gene that goes to Alzheimer's, that's also related to fat. So certain of these genetic predispositions, if we can't assimilate vitamin A, which is so important, again, is as a fat, a soluble vitamin, but also as a helper to manage insulin and upregulate phase one liver detoxification pathways. And in this environment, help with the mucous membrane lining of our lungs. Vitamin A is very important for lung function. Then we have a problem if we're trying to eat this fat, especially in an environment if we are fat malabsorbed because we're pushing epinephrine, which is the stress hormone that opens up the tight junctions of our gut that makes us more likely to be fat malabsorbed. Oh my goodness, so many things you touched on. Okay, with with the genetic testing, it sounds like it can be very valuable to do genetic testing and see what your your tendencies are. How do you feel though on top of that, like the potential of epigenetics and the potential of people I feel like some people get their genetic tests back and they feel empowered by it and they see it as a way to optimize their diet, whereas others get their genetic results back and see it as all the, the things that are potentially wrong. Like, Because I know you talk a lot in your book about the importance of mindset and how that ties into everything. So what do you feel about a person getting their genetic test done to see what polymorphisms they have to optimize their lifestyle compared to perhaps just following the diet. Like if they know they're the type that is going to, you know, get a result and think, oh, this means I can't process something ever. Would they actually be better off just trying, for example, the wildarian diet without doing genetic testing because of that mindset issue? That's a wonderful question. I think we have to look at who we are as an individual. And one of the things that I try to teach my clients is you never act from a place of fear. All information is feedback. So flip fear to feedback. This is a feedback loop that I'm receiving from either a genetic analysis or the way that my body is talking to me. It's just feedback and it's one piece of information in the cadre of pieces of information that I will assemble to then make informed decisions. Again, we're talking about the long game. And one of the things that I say is longevity starts in the womb. And if we can, and I've seen it through the trajectory of me now working with families for over a decade, right? Where we started with 
pre-baby and how these babies have evolved you know, under our umbrella and our approach. And so our genetics are just a tendency. They're a tendency. They're not our destiny. They're just information. If I signal my gene to express in this way, which like makes my body talk like that, then it's just feedback. Oh, okay. I understand. I just had a huge stressful event and I had a loose stool. So I tripped one of those fat metabolism genes, right? Or I had news that, you know, was a shock to my system and all of a sudden I started burping. Okay, well, that means that I'm not digesting my protein very well. It means I could have turned on or turned off my methylation gene. So therefore, I'm not giving my methyl donors to make the trimethylglycine that I need to, or the glycine that I need to produce, to produce enough hydrochloric acid to break down my proteins. So again, it's, it's really, it's be curious about what it is. So, oh, that's interesting. I have all these genetic polymorphisms. I have a ton of them. I have the sulfur. I've got the MTHFR. I've got the CYP, which is the phase one liver detoxification. I've got oxalate genes. I've got comp genes. I, you know, if you look at my genetic predisposition, I could be a complete disaster zone. Yet (laughs) I'm a 58 year old woman who is not on one prescription medication, who is, you know, very, I believe, vibrant and very cognitively aware and fit and happy, even in an environment that's rigorous right now in the world that we're living in. And so I just look at that. I'm like, isn't that interesting that that's what I could be, but I'm not. And my father's side of the family, most of his his family members never made it past their fifties. My dad died at 67 hospital error, but I, I'm not going to, I'm choosing that, not that I, I choose not that. And I'm living not that. And because I'm informed And will I make the exact perfect informed decision every time? No. I had champagne with my daughter. She came home this weekend. She's going to graduate from a top university. I'm very proud of her with highest distinction. She'll graduate from Duke, you know, air quote, graduate from Duke. And we had lots of champagne this weekend. That was great. But you know what? I I do my green juice every morning and I, I counterbalance, right? And so people should not be afraid of what those genes are because we've had these genes for millennia. It's what we're, we're feeding it, what we're feeding our body through dogma, through thinking, through food supply, through our toxic burden that then creates an expression of those genes against our favor. But we can control it. We can. To a great degree, we can control it. I love that. I love that so much. Yeah, I, I love the idea of approaching everything with curiosity because then, you know, nothing can be right or wrong or bad or good. It's just, you know, you can be curious about the outcome and what can you learn from it? Like you said, the feedback, that's incredible. One last question about the liver and processing. You talk about how we often overburden our livers with processing medications and all of these things that has to break down. Do you know if plant compounds are an issue there as well? Like people supplementing with concentrated forms of like resveratrol or quercetin or just like even milk thistle, which is supposed to support the liver. Like are quote plant-based things that require being broken down by the liver given the green card compared to like medications? Great question. So one of my taglines is there's no one food or one supplement for everyone during their lifetime. Because we are not static. We're not static. And so how could we expect to take the same thing for our entire lifetime? So to your question, for me, for example, curcumin, which has been touted as a powerful anti-inflammatory. We ha- I can't take it. It's a, pro- it's a pro-accident ex- instead of an antioxidant. Because if you have a certain genetic predisposition, it can downregulate your phase one liver detoxification by up to 50%, 50%. 
I had a client, she had put on 15, brand new to my practice, put on 15 pounds over five weeks. She's like, I have no idea. What the heck? What am I doing? She was, the edema was incredible and her brain fogginess and it was affecting her thyroid. It was just had a cascading effect on her. We were able to, again, asking the right questions, the right answers will follow. We're able to pinpoint it to the fact that she started drinking turmeric tea every day. And that was creating a backlash in her metabolic pathways. Milk thistle is good, but it also downregulates phase one liver detoxification. I can't take it long term or usually at all. However, when I had a multiple viral attack, I took it without any problem because my body, this is what I call the hierarchy of needs. My liver enzymes were in the 500s. I had liver damage from the viruses. My body needed that milk thistle to help regenerate liver cells. So even though the long-term impact for my taking milk thistle would have not been efficacious for me, the short-term impact was. And this is where it's really important to your listeners that you seek out these curious practitioners that go beyond even training, training in functional medicine. I have a naturopathic doctor that's in my practice. She's very skilled, but I had to train her. <laughs> I, keep say, I kept telling her, follow the thread. Keep following it. Keep following it to that end state, right? So beyond even what the training is, I hope to teach this one day. I love this. I love all this so much. Personally, for me, it's like my dream version of myself. I'm like, I'm just eating real foods and I'm not, <laughs> and I'm not like feeling like I have to take this supplement or this enzyme. On the one hand, I feel like that is almost the ideal state of just, you know, eat the foods that I need, nourish my body. But then it's hard for me to ascertain when am I helping versus when am I hurting and what's too much? Like, like, how do you feel about a lot of people, for example, their practitioner might prescribe them like a general multivitamin to quote, cover, cover the basis. And let's say that it's a, you know, a good brand, one that you would recommend if you did want to supplement with any one of those nutrients. Do you think something like that, for example, it would be better just to do actual blood work and address specific nutrients rather than taking like a multivitamin? I'm considered a purist. And so if I think multivitamins are good for those people that are having Pop-Tarts, right? So they're not, they're not informed. They're really not getting any nu- very little nutrient value from their food supply. And so they need support. But if you really need support, then you're going to need a lot more than that, that multivitamin is providing in that you know 400 IU of vitamin D. You might need 5,000 IU of vitamin D. And 400 doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. And there may be other things in that. For example, a lot of these multivitamins come with, oh, we have some plant-based helpers like the brassica family that's back to sulfur. For me, it would kick my butt because I'm a low-sulfur wildetarian. I can't do sulfur, especially in a therapeutic form. So less is more. And if you need something, this is my personal opinion, but if you need something, go to a targeted dosing rather than something that just scratches the surface. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. 
And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase Asana, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time. That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful 
for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Hi friends, I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me oh my goodness, friends, I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours. 
And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Hi friends. If you're listening to this episode, you might already be or becoming aware of how compounds and food can affect you. Like in this episode, we talk about amyloid proteins, sulfur, and fat malabsorption. But there are also an array of compounds found in food that may or may not potentially be problematic for you. These are things we talked about like gluten, histamine, sulfites, oxalates, etc. And there are also things like FODMAPs, lectin, salicylates, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It can be a bit overwhelming. That's why I created an app called Food Sense Guide. I honestly created it for myself and it is so helpful. It's an easily searchable guide to over 300 foods for 11, yes, 11 potentially problematic compounds, including all of the ones I just talked about. I'm looking at you, gluten, lectins, sulfites, thiols, oxalates, nightshades, so much more. You can get it in the iTunes store and also at the link melanieavalon.com slash guide. I find it so helpful and I think you will as well. All right, now back to the show. Speaking about the sulfur, so what is the sulfur aspect that goes a little bit wonky with sulfation potentially for people? And is everybody susceptible to potentially sulfur issues or is it what would cause sulfur issues? So I think the glyphosate has been the tipping point. I have the CBS gene, the cystothidone beta synthase gene. I have another, the SUOX gene or polymorphisms of those genes. I've got BH4. I've got multiple sulfation pathway genes. I never had any sulfur issues until just a few years ago. And I believe there was a tipping point in the food supply. And I used to eat all the sulfur compounds. And my first book, which I wrote almost a decade ago, I was very pro-sulfur. But our environment changed. Our environment changed. And so that's why opinions can change. Does that make you a hypocrite? No, it makes you a curious ever researcher, right? Thank you for saying that. I know. 
that's the problem is it's like if you change your mind, then people say, oh, see, you were wrong and you were, you know, that it's against you. But then if you don't change your mind, you're not changing your mind. That's why I'm just like everything I say, I reserve the right to change <laughs> completely because I don't if I know one thing is that I know nothing. And then I'm just trying to learn. My ideas are changing a lot. That's beautiful because we're not static. And, you know, this is the law of physics. We are in constant motion. To believe that things will stay the same is against the law of nature. Yes, it is so true. And so thank you for being ever curious and ever evolving. And as I continue to discern and as the planet continues to change and as our response biochemically to the planet continues to change, we have to continue to evolve, evolve in our thinking, evolve in how we, we address these big, big issues, these you know planetary issues that are right in front of us today. And so sulfur has been in our bodies we, in its end state sulfate, which makes tendons and helps create the gut environment. It helps with a lot of our neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, epinephrine, norepinephrine, even histamine, which is a neurotransmitter. It has multiple body functions. What glyphosate has done, it is created in what I call an intermediary metabolite of hell <laughs> as it relates to the body's ability to convert the sulfur compounds. And so instead, they're not converted and they can leak our gut. It's been linked to Crohn's, to ulcerative colitis, to IBD. It's been linked to mental health issues. It's been linked to arthritis. 73% of rheumatoid arthritis has a sulfur impairment association. We've been very efficacious against returning clients back to balance and returning their antibodies to normal in rheumatoid arthritis and other forms of arthritis. But arthritis is one of those big telltale signs. If you have arthritis, you more than likely have a sulfur impairment issue, among other things, because what caused the, that gene to be expressed, and that's the pathogenic load in our thinking and so forth, uh, or a toxic burden that flips the switch. But it's a big deal, and very few people were talking about it. Dave Asprey and I are friends. We, I was on his podcast recently, and we call it Killer Kale. <laughs> because kale has both sulfur and oxalate properties. So these things that we're juicing with and putting in our food supply, and then we're wondering why we're so bloated and we can't think and our joints are killing us. We had a client, she found me out of Texas. She's a dear 70-something-year-old woman. And Liz is her name. She actually had me interviewed on an on a Austin CBS uh, station because she was down to three foods and she had tried everything. And this woman was in significant distress, both immunologically and from her gut. And we brought Liz back from what she felt was impossible as a 70-something-year-old. And her thing was sulfur, which created a neurotransmitter response in the body, which created an over-innervation in her gut, which also affected her joints and affected her nervous system. And now she's a happy wildetarian. That situation has resolved and she's doing so well. That's amazing. So listeners, no matter how far deep you feel like you are, you know, with everything going on, you can restore, which is, that is so incredible. A question that made me think of as well. Are you familiar with the supplements that use like the humic substances? Like what is it called? Like Terra Hydrate? Humic and fulvic acid. Do you see benefit with using those to help restore the gut lining, especially with from glyphosate? Yeah. So some people can take those. I personally can't. I've tried them. They don't like me. And so I think we have to be really, because acid for me, again, having multiple sulfation pathway issues, and I tend to acidify, which then can make my joints hurt. 
but it's been it's been good in terms of lowering glyphosate loads, and some have found it to be really really efficacious. I found I find for me quercetin because it's a bioflavonoid that actually seals the tight junctions of the gut and I've done some new research on that that shows that it also helps to break down oxalates uh, which oxalates and sulfur they they're cousins in in that arena so I really like I really like quercetin what form do you take it in I take quercetin with bromelain and it's usually like 500 to 200 ratio Bromelain helps the absor- assimilation of quercetin, which quercetin now has been really, really touted to help increase the bioavailability of zinc, which is in this novel season, as I'm calling it, is super important. Yeah, I, I've been taking quercetin every night for I mean, quite a while, but I have a powder form of it right now, and I was wondering if there were potentially better forms of it. Well, I like powder because anything that's powder, yeah, anything that's powder, you got to put in water and water makes it more bioavailable. When my clients are super, super impaired, I'll literally have them open up whatever capsule, take a tweezer and sprinkle it into some water until the body can tolerate it. I like opening my capsules too. (laughs) Um, Okay. Okay. And okay, here's a crazy question, but we were talking about how, you know, being open to new ideas and that whole idea. <laughs> so I was thinking about something the other day, which when the idea was initially came before me, my initial response was, oh no, that's just no. But then I thought about it some more and I was like, hmm, I am wondering about this. So I'm actually really curious to hear what your thoughts are. They're working on basically genetically engineering meat. What are your thoughts on that? And my, the reason I'm like thinking about it more deeply is a, it's completely in contrast to everything I think with, you know, eating natural and eating wild and all of that. But what if it was a created form of meat that didn't have toxins, didn't have amyloids and was just basically the animal version of protein without all of that? Do you think there's potentially problems there? Great question. I think we have to be really evolved and very like a skilled surgeon in its creation to be really careful that the body doesn't interpret it as something it doesn't understand. So I think as we evolve scientifically, my position is nothing is impossible, but genetically engineered thus far has been disappointing. And so I think as we continue to evolve, that may be possible. But you have to nail it 100% because the body's super smart. The body is so smart. It's like, I don't recognize you. So I'm going to put a law, I'm going to launch something (laughs) in the front, you know, against you. I quote like that answer. Basically, it would have to be, I mean, it would literally in a way have to be meat, but it couldn't be even slightly off because there would be the potential that, like you said, the body, oh, they could go really bad, really, really quickly. You spoke about juicing. Uh, One of the things you talk about in your book was juicing and the role of chlorophyll. And something I had never heard before was that chlorophyll actually is similar to human blood. And you said it was like the blood of plants. I'd love to hear a little bit about that, the, the potential role of chlorophyll and how we can get that into our diets. Yeah, so chlorophyll is non-hemi iron, but it's molecularly similar to human blood with the carbon in the middle is it's magnesium instead instead of the hemi. And so what's so interesting about chlorophyll, I had a woman whose iron levels were seven. We were able to raise them to 77 in a, and I think it was about a 10-week process, not by giving her iron because she couldn't take iron. 
because she had a viral load and the body sequesters iron and give you feedback of the body iron in the wrong environment. It's going to do bad things by using chlorophyll. And so chlorophyll also is an oxygenator and oxygenator is super important in the production of iron. Oxygen and B12 and hemoglobin, they're all part of, you know, the blood creating really robust red blood cells. And so we can use non-hemi forms of iron. Hemi typically has to come from an animal. And that's why liver, desiccated liver has become popular of late. I have a client who is 30 and a half weeks pregnant, has had a very, very low ferritin and low iron for a very long time. And we've been able to hold her pregnancy iron levels and ferritin levels by using chlorophyll and desiccated liver and then some form of bioglycinite ferrochel. But yes, chlorophyll is a beautiful instrument in the body for the creation of iron-rich blood. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited right now because I've been <laughs> I've been struggling with my iron levels like to very severe amounts and it doesn't make sense because I eat a lot of iron-rich foods. So with chlorophyll, can a person take like when you order like the chlorophyll liquid or are they getting it from food? Both. I do. I like organic chlorophyll again. An alfalfa based is really good. What I get back to your process, Melanie, and your protocol, I have my clients open up the chlorophyll in water, stir it and drink it. So again, more bioavailable. And then juicing every day is super important to get those iron rich. If you don't have an oxalate issue, iron, parsley is super high in iron. I say iron, I'm sorry, spinach and parsley is super high in iron. The deeper the green, the more the chlorophyll and potential non-hemi iron that you can avail yourself of. And then chlorella, which is sea-based, um, you know, seaweed, it also very high in iron. To clarify for the juicing, are these green juices only? I think a lot of people think juicing and they think like fruit juice. Oh, yes. Great question. So I don't like putting fruit in my green juice because I call it a nutrition IV. It doesn't have, you don't require digestion when there's no pulp or fiber to slow its process down. So it's going straight to the liver and straight to the other organs. So I don't like including including fruit in my drink. I drink every morning my cilantro cucumber peeled cucumber and fresh cilantro which then i add some collagen to i'll add my wild lights which is one of my specially formulated supplements that it's an electrolyte mix that also supports all sorts of other things and then i add a little bit of my vitamin c in the form of mixed ascorbic acid it's more bioavailable that for me is my morning cocktail every morning as soon as i stumble out of bed before i go for my run it helps me wake up it clears my body it is my nutrition IV and it really helps to detoxify. I don't wear deodorant. I don't have to when I sweat and I sweat because I work out. But if you, that's another way to have your audience understand body feedback. If you have a scent, a strong scent to your sweat, then you are not fully detoxificating your system because it's coming out through the skin. And so my daily juice is my friend. Okay, two really exciting things you touched on. One, I am obsessed with cucumbers. I was going to ask you your thoughts on cucumbers. So sounds like I'm good to keep the cucumbers in my diet. The amount of cucumbers I go through is insane. I go to Costco and I get, I order, I, I buy so much and they always ask me, they say, what do you do with all of those? I don't juice. Well, this sounds kind of crazy. I do juice them, but then I drink the juice separate and then I eat like the fibrous material with my meal. Perfect. 
Perfect. And I, I just blogged on juicing or actually did an Instagram post on juicing. And I say, you can take the fiber. The wildatarian approach is nothing is wasted. So you can add it back to soups. You can put it in, like if you're going to do a zucchini bread or whatever kind of, any kind of sweet bread, if you will, air quote, you can add it back in. You don't waste anything. You can put it into lasagna. That's the brown rice quinoa pasta lasagna. You can just put it in anything as a bind, you know, as a binder. <laughs> I, you're like you're like the first person who understands my very strange protocol because <laughs> I literally do that. Oh wow, I'm so excited right now. And then the second thing, oh yeah, so the wild lights. And thank you by the way. We actually have a discount code for those for listeners. But I wanted to hear more about them because I I saw I haven't tried them yet, but I saw the ingredients. Hey, I'm obsessed with watermelon, but they include things like watermelon, cilantro. So what is in Wild Lights and why did you choose those ingredients? So the, there's a big, you know, everybody's taking electrolytes right now, right? It's a big thing in the marketplace. I work with a lot of professional athletes. I work with a lot of athletes that sweat a lot. I work with a lot of sick people too, but there was nothing in the marketplace that didn't have a sulfur base situation and their sulfur is such a big deal especially with this whole glyphosate phenomena, or there was some artificial ingredients. And I worked with my partner, Biotics Research, who formulates this for me, but I actually create, gave them the formula to, and then we did a couple of rounds of experimenting on what I wanted it to be exactly right. And why I chose this, it's a, I believe it's one of my, I'm so proud of this because it has so many potential benefits to the body. So why cilantro? and watermelon and sea salt. So together, they have calcium and magnesium and phosphorus and potassium. So it's important in the full electrolyte compound. But what's so interesting is what I love about this is that it helps with the sodium-potassium pump, which is that intracellular exchange for intracellular communication. What's either more helpful is and what's even more helpful is that watermelon is really rich in arginine, and arginine helps support the upregulation of nitric oxide. Why is that so important? Because it's so important for cardiovascular function, for vasodilation, which is so important in this novel season. And so it's a, it's again, I thought it, it's simple, but I believe it's a brilliant symphony of what the body can avail itself of. It's also been shown that the, these combinations help to manage the lowering of uric acid levels, which are so important for kidney function. And uric acid has been linked to gout. It's also been linked to uric acid and ammonia been linked to protein malabsorption. So it's a really, really beautiful little simple formulation. One of my testers in, as we were testing this product, she's a celiac and she, she claims that I made it just for her <laughs> because she says that when she cross-contaminates her cross-contamination symptomology goes from days to minutes. And she says she has one every, you know, she's got wild lights in every part of her, you know, kitchen. It's in her second home. It's every, well, now she's not traveling, but she's like, I don't leave home without it. And she really does claim I made it just for her. So it's, it's a great anti-inflammatory because it, again, this is empirical evidence. We haven't done clinical trials on does this happen? But just empirically, what we're seeing is, I believe it helps break down oxalates. And so, which is so big in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's and, and celiac, and as, along with sulfur. So uh, I, I'm really excited about this. And we've just had just resounding thumbs up for the, the many, many clients and other folks that have, have tried it and use it. I, I, I take it every day. 
Okay. So I am super excited to try it. And so a question I think a lot of my listeners will have because I and a lot of my audience practices intermittent fasting. So is it just hearing watermelon? I know, I think it is, you said it's from the rind though. Is it from the rind? No, it, no, it's the actual, it's actual. Is it sweet at all? It doesn't taste like sweet. It has a hint of, if, it, if you were to think of it, it has a hint of cucumber because watermelon and cucumber are in the same family. No, but it doesn't taste sweet. Okay. I'm just wondering for listeners, if if they're practicing fasting, if they should take it maybe at a certain time. Yeah. I would say if they're practicing, it depends on when they intermittent fast. I would say break your fast with it because it's really, it's a, it would be a great way to, to break your fast with it. And on the other podcast, we often suggest with things like that, where, where it's like liquids that oftentimes are posited as being fasting themselves, but we think it still is quote breaking the fast, something like bone broth, where like it's a great way to break your fast because that's when you're ready, you're like primed to like <laughs> bring it in. So it's like the best of all worlds. I guess the same could go for like the green juice as well. Exactly. And that also when you're breaking your fast, you're going to need those electrolytes. So that's really important then. A few last quick questions. I do want to be respectful of your time. The sweet aspect that you're talking about, one of the things that I loved in your book is you don't encourage you know, completely eradicating sweets. You talk about the importance of our sweet taste and the importance of keeping, quote, sweet foods in our diet. So what role is there, do you think, for the sweet taste and having sweet foods in our diet? And by, I guess you can clarify what sweet foods are. Yes, I'm not talking about a big fat donut. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. But it helps with the satiety factor. The body helps uh, when we have something sweet, there's a feedback loop in the body that says, okay, we're done. You're now safe to turn off that kind of hunger, the appetite response. But what we also know is the brain needs sugar to function. And if we don't have enough sugar, then we really could be creating a rebound effect. I had a young woman who had candida and came to see me and she was, she couldn't drive. She was shaking. She was passing out. She was on a, a candida diet that had zero, zero sugar, zero sugar. And so what was happening as the body's response to zero sugars, her body was pushing a ton of epinephrine, which is what I call the cupcake because it's a fat and a sugar. She was going so hypoglycemic, that the body responded with a stress response to this hypoglycemia, therefore releasing a ton of epinephrine that was causing her to effectively eat more sugar than the sugar she wasn't eating. And so we put together, we, we started her on little buckwheat and uh, she could eat some oats because we do applied kinesiology here. And she texted me two days later. She's like, I feel human again. You know, she had stopped shaking. She'd stopped passing out. And so we have to be really, really careful because the body then has to go through glycosis, right? And it's very, very hard on the kidneys when you're having to break down protein to convert it to sugar in that way. And, and you know, fat and, and protein actually a breakdown of our own muscle mass. I'm not talking about food protein, but our own muscle mass. And so we have to be careful with not with the zero sugar. We need it. Our brain needs it for our fuel. Uh, we need it to move our muscles. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm... <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. Cause like, like I said, for me, like for a while I was on, you know, really high fruit, really high protein diet. I saw a practitioner who, she thought that, well, I turned out that I had like 
really high mercury toxicity, which was not good. She was saying that she thought I probably had candida and I should, you know, cut out all the sugar and go super low carb. And honestly, I, that made that whole thing worse. (laughs) And I've seen, I mean, I think it does help a lot of people, but I think a lot of people as well, like you just said, you know, the opposite happens, you know, there's a stress response, there's, you know, creating your own endogenous sugar from protein. And then there's the potential of even, I think by starving the candida, you know, detox Herxheimer type reactions. So I just think it's, it's such a more comprehensive picture than I think a lot of people think like dull, low carb, high fat or high carb, low fat seems to be much more nuanced, natural, going more natural, wild, going more natural. Absolutely. And being granular. And this is what our practice offers. We offer a really granular approach to you and what you may be seeking and needing is might be different than what your friend may be seeking and needing, but undergirded with genetic tendencies your blueprinting and your and your current state of health and symptomology. And then the body tells the truth always in applied kinesiology in the way that I have adopted it, adapted it rather, is it works. You know, we just have, again, we've got almost, you know, we've got over 15 years of it works. And I'm very proud of that because, you know, this was born from a mama bear trying to save her cub. You know, I, I always, I always remind him what a big, influence he's played in the in the lives of thousands and thousands of individuals. Well, thank you so much. It is so incredible what you're doing. And for listeners in Terry's book, Wildatarian, she does break it down into four different Wildatarian types. And she has a quiz that you can do to help find that type and then, you know, recommended recipes and the dietary protocol to follow for that. So it's a super helpful resource. I cannot recommend it enough. And it's fascinating. I mean, obviously you can tell how obsessed I am. I will put a link to it in the show notes. And then the the code for listeners for the wild lights, which I'm also really excited to try. You can use the code Melanie Avalon and that will get you 15% off of that. So thank you so much for that, Terry. Is there anything else that you feel like that we didn't touch on that you would like to get out there to the audience? Thank you for having me on your show. It's been so fun and you're so, so uh, informed. I'm, I'm just thrilled and pleased to know that there are people out there like you that are really, you know, really being curious, ever curious. What I would leave the audience with is we're in this change for the long game. A short-term draconian approach to anything doesn't work because it's not sustainable. And so it's really inviting curiosity, becoming informed and creating habits that become innately part of who you are so that it's not a deprivation and you're not separating self from self. It becomes integral to how you walk and breathe on the planet and it is living in abundance and as nature intended. So I I leave everyone hopefully with hope and the fact that to to stay ever curious and look at the long game. Well, that is so beautiful and it's so appropriate because the last question I ask every single guest on this podcast is just because everything you've said, I've realized how important mindfulness and our perspective and our view of everything is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh my goodness. I'm so grateful for the fact that every morning the sun continues to shine, which breathes life into us and helps be a catalyst for life on this planet, even in this COVID season, in the season of uncertainty is that it's just such beautiful evidence that there's something bigger breathing us and to breathe into that. 
Thank you so much, Terry. This has been incredible. Don't tell everybody, but this has been one of my favorite episodes yet. <laughs> this has just been so amazing. I am just loving this. Are there any other links that you'd like to put out there for the audience for listeners to learn more? We, we believe that we're educators first. So uh, terrycochran.com, www.terrycochrane.com, which is my website, has, I believe, a plethora of information. You can just uh, search for whatever you want, and we can talk anything from amyloids to Epstein-Barr to, you know, our, what, our, how our thoughts influence our epigenetics. It's, it's all there. So we're here, we're here to help, help inform and empower, truly. Well, thank you so much. This has been incredible for listeners. I will put links to all of this in the show notes. Again, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash wild. I have to ask you, do you have any future books or anything like that coming up? (laughs) No, but my Global Sustainable Health Institute will hopefully be launching soon. And I hope to be really expanding the platform of sharing this, which will eventually eventually lead to some books. Awesome. So incredible. Well, this has been amazing and hopefully we can talk again in the future. I'd love that. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.